0: Hey there, neighbor, and welcome to another very special episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. And on today's show, I seek penance for my cinematic sins with a war crimes review of Blue Velvet. Then in special features, we will discuss what makes a memorable villain. And finally, we will wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... I'm sure some of you are wondering why we decided to dedicate a full episode to a war
1: crimes review this week instead of discussing the sure to be surprise box office juggernaut of
0: the summer, Mad Max Fury Road. And I'm sure far more of you fully understand why we aren't reviewing Mad Max Fury Road, since as you listen to this podcast, it is currently plummeting at the box office faster than the battleship in the Milton Bradley motivated motion picture battleship. You know, the one with Rihanna, Liam Neeson, and that carriage toppling down a large staircase? I think you're mixing up your highbrow and lowbrow here, Hunter.
1: Full disclosure here, guys. We are recording this the weekend Mad Max Fury Road was released, but the show won't be out until the following
0: weekend. And I did not think that anyone would care to hear about Mad Max Fury Road a week after its release.
1: So we decided we're going to settle this the way
0: grown men do, with gambling and alcohol. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, is the first ever Summer Shandy Chug-Off. And here are the rules. If Mad Max Fury Road wins places or shows at... Wait, 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 wait. No. Hunter, you specifically said this is in writing on the interwebs. You specifically said below fifth place. (sighs) If Mad Max Fury Road wins places or shows or comes in fourth or fifth at the box office during the Memorial Day weekend, I, Hunter Cates, will choke a Lanning Kugel summer shandy on the spot on air. And... If it comes
1: in below fifth place, then I, Chris Gallagher, will chug an entire Leinenkugel summer shandy on the spot, on air. But Hunter, I actually have a little extra wager that I want to add on top of this that uh, we didn't discuss. Oh, fantastic. I love bets like this. So not only does one of us have to chug an entire bottle. It should probably be a can. I would say we should shotgun it, but we're not going to shotgun beer in my office, especially beer that's not even beer. Um, you wouldn't want that on your carpet. I would not want that on my carpet. This carpet really ties the room together. Um, but beyond just having to chug the world's most disgusting summer beer, um, I think we should add, make it a little more interesting. All right. You were very excited about seeing and reviewing Mr. Holmes. Is that correct? That is correct. So if you win, then Mad Max Fury Road is gone under the rug. We, we don't have to review it. We don't have to talk about it. I won't even bring it up in a streaming uh, review later on down the road. See what I did there? If I win... We don't have to
0: review Mr. Holmes coming out, what, in a month or so? If you wish to deny yourself the pleasure and quite honestly just drinking the summer shandy, I'm not sure I could survive that. It will probably give me an F fatal aneurysm <laughs> chugging a summer shandy. So I'm not sure anyone, I will be, even be seen, Mr. Holmes. So I will uh, accept that addition to the bet. Wonderful. So to find out who has to suffer the suck and chug a summer shandy, tune in to our next episode. But until
1: then, dear listener, why don't you come with us and have some fun in Loggington? as we review David Lynch's 1986 film, Blue Velvet. Are you
2: the one that found me here? You? you know anything? Well, one name that keeps coming up is this woman's singer. I'll bet someone could learn a lot by getting into that woman's apartment. I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. Well, it's for me to know and you to find out. What are you doing in my apartment? I close my
1: eyes. These war crimes reviews are designed to force us films, we feel some level of shame in admitting we haven't seen. In this tribunal, we're reviewing one of Hunter's war crimes, David Lynch's 1986 fever dream, Blue Velvet. It's your typical story of boy finds severed ear, boy meets innocent girl, boy ends up scared naked and bleeding in the closet of insane girl. You know, that old chestnut. Yes, and remarkably similar to my sole excursion into the Boy Scouts. You know, Hunter, I'm a little surprised you were willing to visit Loggington the film's idyllic Northwestern community with the face of June Cleaver and the underbelly of Sam Spade. Not because I assume David Lynch is just too bizarre for your classic cinematic sensibilities, but because you recently brought Roger Ebert's review of the film to my attention. The review is far beyond a dismissive thumbs down. It's more the critical equivalent of a father telling a child, I'm not mad at you, I'm disappointed. Like his colleagues, Gene Siskel, Pauline Kael, and many others, Ebert acknowledges the craft Lynch put into this picture but he was severely disturbed by Lynch's treatment of both his actors and his characters. He found it demoralizing and dark, but for seemingly no purpose, other than to juxtapose the shininess of Mayberry with the grotesque of Travis Bickle's New York City. And all for a quick joke. Upon revisiting Blue Velvet for this review, I was amazed at how little I found played for laughs, and how difficult I found it to side with Ebert on this one. In attempting to see Blue Velvet this time from Ebert's perspective, I felt as much terror as I felt the first time, and maybe even more, but I still failed to find it needlessly abusive to the film's characters and actors. For me, Lynch brings the weight necessary to justify the actions on screen. This was your first experience with Blue Velvet, and I imagine Ebert's take on the film had to be somewhere at the back of your mind, even before you hit play. So where did you side on this one? Are you in cahoots with Siskel and Kale, or did you find that Ebert was right all along? And furthermore... Do you think prior knowledge of Ebert's review impacted your experience of the film?
0: Um, actually, I think Roger Ebert's review of the film is almost a interesting discussion in and of itself, because it begins with, I don't really care for this movie because blank, blank, and bank. And then he proceeds to talk about everything he almost liked about the movie. It mm-hmm. reads like a review of a movie he really enjoyed. And then he almost finishes off with, but I still didn't like it because blank, blank, and blank, the things I mentioned to you earlier. This was one of his, as you said, misfires. And I don't think it's a misfire because I necessarily disagree with him. It's a misfire because I think he disagrees with himself. He reviewed Godfather Part Two; He gave it three stars as well as The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. He gave both of those three stars and they wound up in his Great Movies, Greatest Movies Ever list. And I'm a little surprised that this picture did not receive the same treatment. However, Mulholland Drive, which came out several years later, wound up getting four stars from Ebert. And I imagine it... Uh, having not seen it, I still imagine it occupies the same Lynchian territory the Blue Velvet did. So Very I almost th- yeah, yeah. So I almost think that was his uh, old man in the sea making amends for not liking Blue Velvet, but well, he never really made amends for disliking Blue Velvet. I I kind of think he liked the movie. He just there was something about it that bothered him, and it and so he he was a bit of a moralist as a reviewer, mm-hmm. and so that's that played into his interpretation of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you say moralist. I think that's a perfect sort of perspective on exactly where he's trying to come at this review, because I think the laying out all the things that he liked is not so much to um, go against himself, like in my reading of it, because there's, there's his review. And then there's also, he kind of wrote uh, a short little op-ed piece uh, later after he'd actually interviewed Lynch about the film and still like, standing by his, his feeling on it. And to me, it felt more like he could see that cinematically as a, as a motion picture, it was very well crafted. It was, um, you know, a immersive sort of experience, but at the end of the day, he was still morally opposed to what the picture was presenting.
0: Presumably we'll start talking about Blue Blueveld eventually, but the, the whole Roger Ebert factor is so interesting to me. Do you think that that is legitimate that you can quote, like a movie, but still find it immoral and ergo, give it a bad review?
1: Uh, I think so. I mean, I I think those are two different things. And and his, you know, his justification is that, um, you know, critics were going crazy for the movie at the time and he felt something, you know, it was in I think the thing that was kind of recurring in everything that that I saw in red, because there was also a brief like five minute Siskel and Yver at the movies um, piece on it as well, that the scene of Isabella Rossellini uh, naked, stark naked on the lawn in the middle of the night. Um, he kept going to that point of that as like, that's, you know, not just saying that that's something that should never be on screen, but that he didn't see it justified. He didn't see that, uh, you know, everything leading up to this point justified putting her in that place. And that to him, it was more just like a, here's a bizarre, you know, sort of scenario with nudity and it's shocking to be shocking and we've shot it really well and, and all of that. But there's no he didn't feel like there was any substance there or anything um, to justify doing it. And you disagree, I take it. I, I disagree. Like, I think there was, I mean, this is the second time that I've seen it. Um, I really liked it the first time. It was one of the first David Lynch films I had seen. And when did you see it? Uh, in It was in college. I was probably, I mean, it was probably sophomore year, okay. I would say, um, thereabouts. And I liked it, but it was, I think, I think it was probably the second Lynch film I had seen. I i had seen Eraserhead, which was sort of like a, um, I don't even know. Like, I saw that. I think maybe my senior year of high school, which was maybe the perfect time, maybe too early uh, to see, to see that film. But it definitely like expanded my horizons. But at the same time, like for, for a long time, David Lynch in my mind was like just the arty, uh, sort of person who was making these, these films. I mean, just based on a head was like someone who was like making these films that are, uh, sort of artfully made, but for absolutely no purpose, actually kind of like, I mean, if you would have asked me uh, my freshman year of college, what do I think of David Lynch? It probably actually would have been kind of in line with where Ebert landed on this in that um, he, he knows his craft, but he's just sort of being a snob about stuff. And the more that I've, gone through, you know, his I haven't seen everything, but um, a good portion of this, like actually that maybe was one of the best things in revisiting this. I can see so many pieces of Lynch's career kind of tied into this with uh, I mean, there's a lot of close connections to something like Twin Peaks, his television show in, you know, in the setting in the like juxtaposing this like idyllic little world of uh, a logging community with a really dark, sort of sinister side as well, placing those up against each other. There was also a lot of Kyle McLaughlin's ass,
0: which is a recurrent theme in Lynch's work. You
1: know, I would I would say not as much as you get of like perhaps Richard Gere in the American remake of Breathless. Um,
0: well, but, and, well, that's kind of that's kind of a, kind of a, a high benchmark. That, to that hit. is that is a high watermark. And as a as a aside uh, into this review today, <clears throat> as much as I admire uh, Siskel and Ebert as well as their television program, I would just like to point out that, however testy it got. Only on War Starts at Midnight, where you have two reviewers who force the other to drink a shitty beer <laughs> in, in the event of a disagreement. You never saw that in Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel's show, despite the fact that on air but for 30 years. But in fairness, years. we do not yet have the amazing blooper
1: reels that they do of just flat uh, out arguments.
0: Yes, people destroying the But characters. I digress. But that so was an aside. Back, back
1: to my original question Did you find that it was sort of demoralizing to the characters and the
0: actors? Well, actually, you kind of gave me an out a second ago, which I appreciate, is that you said that the first time you saw Blue Velvet or that that general age range is you might have sided with Ebert more. But the more and more you've watched Lynch, the more and more it's expanded your horizons Mm -hmm. about what he's trying to do. And so with this, I kind of feel like that there's something I'm missing. and I'm not quite sure what it was because it didn't do a whole lot for me. I didn't hate it. It didn't bore me. Mm -hmm. I was with it the entire time but i'm not sure much like with maps to the stars which we watched a while ago is i'm not sure what he was trying to do and if what he was trying to do is really all that exciting to me yeah the the best See, i can the best i can say is that what he was trying to do is satirize a 1950s kind of style of living and indicate that no actually there's a level of sexual violence carnal carnage underneath mm-hmm. and that's not something that it, it doesn't. It didn't seem all that revelatory to me. It seemed okay. That's that's. It's, it's almost feels like a like an elongated skit of hey, let's see, let's see, leave it to Beaver, but find out that actually underneath it, they're all sex perverts. However, everything that you've said and everything I've read, uh, it's one of those things. Actually, I didn't get the same impression Roger Ebert did. Uh, and I can see what all the other critics are saying, but I didn't feel that is the best way to describe it.
1: OK, so you you kind of saw it
0: as more the riff on the, the 50s nuclear family. I saw it as I was I was going in actually anticipating it to be just a weird movie. <laughs> because David st- Lynch? <laughs> yes, just to be a weird movie. And what I found was that that is a very conventional movie, but just told in a very weird way. And mm-hmm. the only thing that was unrealistic about it, per se, was the 1950s setting. Or not 1950s setting, but the 1950s but the, yeah, style, the, and it made me wonder what was the point of that.
1: My and I, I can't really tell you what my reaction was the very first time I saw it, but this time around, like I was amazed at just how like it felt like a straight noir to me. Obviously, you get the setup from the beginning. You've got you know your slow motion fire truck with the fireman waving and uh, the picket fence with the roses
0: and all of that. Kind of like Ronald Reagan's Morning in America, which that commercial, which maybe that yeah. was. Inspired uh, by d-
1: very, very possible, although, I mean, Lynch is very like he he loves that era. Um, and and so, I mean, I think it's all it could just as easily be from just that's that's the type of thing that he loves and he's
0: playing with it. So you don't think he was making um, fun of it then?
1: I don't. And, and see, that's the I Ebert was very concerned that it was all sort of this joke, this joke on the community and everything. And it never felt like that to me. It felt more. Like other than the there were there were two places where I laughed. First one was in the very beginning when Kyle McLaughlin's father has a heart attack and you see like slow motion water spraying in the air and then a dog um, like drinking the water. And then we go wide and you see the dog on top of the man who's like passed out in the lawn and drinking the water out of the hose that he's still holding in his hand. Like that felt like a direct like sort of joke. Thing, But also like a weird um, Lynch just has these absurd little pieces that he always puts in throughout, you know, pretty much all of his work. I mean, later on, you've got Kyle McLaughlin walking down the street, uh, you know, late at night. This is before anything really gets weird other than finding an ear. And there's just a man walking his dog standing kind of a, a portly, paunchy man just standing on the sidewalk completely still. Uh, dog's just standing there completely still. McLaughlin walks by. Nothing happens. Like, it's just like he's almost placed there just to make you uneasy. And there's actually sort of an echo of that later on with the yellow man um, in uh, Isabella Rossellini's apartment. Uh, at the very end of the film, like just standing there completely stoic, but no, like overall, I didn't think it was very funny. I, I saw it really as that was an entry point. The, the whole 50 setting was an entry point for him, but he was really telling a straight noir story. Um, I mean, if you, if you really break it down, it is Kyle McLaughlin's character, uh, Jeffrey, um, kind of stumbles into this whole criminal underbelly and through, one decision after another just gets deeper and deeper and i mean it's your your classic trope of like uh good guy or at least uh neutral guy falls into darker and darker scenarios and makes the wrong decision
0: time and time again to the point that he now cannot get out of it all right and to that point uh you said You know, nice guy or neutral guy. However, there were a couple of points to me that indicated that no, maybe actually he's a little bit perverted as well. Did you get that at any point in time? That maybe what they're trying to say is that underneath this Halcyon view of city life, I Small mean, town life may, it's actually maybe perverted. a little bit.
1: I mean, he's like, what, like a 19 year old kid. I think he's he's in college, at, at least there is uh, the line from Laura Dern's character, Sandy, uh, pretty early on. I think it's when they're actually staking out Isabella Rossellini's apartment. And she says, uh, I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. And so I, I think that is to say that it's not there would be unjust. But I feel like on the whole, like if you had to weigh the two, he's more the curious case than the just sex driven case. But at the same time, there's definitely a weird attraction to Dorothy Valens, the Isabella Rossellini character in the sexuality and the darkness of her. So to completely dismiss that,
0: I think, would be wrong as well. Well, and that's another thing that I didn't quite understand is she's being used as a and, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the picture, then you're at this point, then you're me. You're worse than me. Um, so she was someone who we have been led to believe or not led to believe, told that she is now Dennis Hopper, Frank Booth's sex slave. However, she seems to not necessarily, well, I would say enjoy it from him and then also enjoy it from Kyle McLaughlin. What, what, what did you think that was about? I mean, it, uh, to me, it felt more complicated
1: than just saying it's X or Y. Um, it, it felt like there was, you know, maybe a bit of Stockholm syndrome there going on in just the only way to cope with such a traumatic experience is to kind of flip it in, in a way. And there is a very interesting power dynamic switch um, whenever McLaughlin uh, basically breaks into her apartment and um, that gosh, darn Heineken that he's been drinking. He uh, he doesn't hear the four honks to get out. Um, and so he's in her apartment. She comes in, he's hiding in the closet and, And there's a kind of a quick dynamic change where, you know, from him watching her undress and being a pervert to her forcing him to undress and taking the the power in the situation and still being the dominant sexual figure in the uh, in the story. Like there's a lot of uh, dynamism here. It's not it's not just a flat like
0: she is or she isn't like but, and she's, the, she's both yeah and then she winds up on her knees uh yeah you know going after him to me it didn't feel and i and i can certainly see where you're coming from the stockholm syndrome that's not what i got to me it kind of felt like and this is one of my big pet peeves in movies is it felt like the characters were behaving according to the plot not according to themselves and they were doing what david lynch wanted them to do to say whatever it is he wanted to say. And I wasn't sure what he wanted to say Okay. other than what we mentioned earlier. I I
1: didn't, I didn't get that other than maybe, uh, and we should probably get into this because this is sort of our, our topic and special features. Frank Booth, uh, played magnificently terrifyingly by Dennis Hopper. Um, he's, he's the one character that I felt like there's not enough flesh there to really understand, um, motivation or even more than that, to understand why he has this kind of pack of cronies that follow him. He seems like he has the vocabulary of like a 12 year old who has just learned how to swear and uh, maybe the libido of a 12 year old as well, who has just learned you know, about his anatomy. And that's sort of the one thing. While I think he is an amazingly terrifying character, um, he's a little less fleshed
0: out than everyone else uh, for me. You know what I mean? Well, and and to, again, just different interpretations here. Is I just again felt like okay, we need a really sick, sadistic, sexual bad guy, and mm. okay, well, this is it. This is what he's written to do. So it didn't feel like you said it didn't feel fleshed out. It didn't feel truly explored. Just because that's it. David Lynch. It didn't even occur to him to do it because that's not what he wanted. He didn't know what he was trying to say, or at least if, or at least I am not sure. I am not sure what he was trying to say. Okay. This actually in as kind of an aside, this was an interesting time for Dennis Hopper, I would say, in his career, because up until this point, he had played mostly hippies. He had, of course, directed Easy Rider back in the late 60s. And then which is a whole contested weird. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. That, that's one of those things. I think they just turned the camera on and then assembled a movie later. And then Apocalypse Now was his, I would say, his other big role. And he Mm -hmm. played a particularly bizarre character there. But again, yeah, yeah. a hippie. And this was a a career shift for him because he played a really snarling, sadistic villain, as you said. And then afterwards, I would say that that was primarily what his career was. That's kind of how I grew up knowing him. Well, exactly.
1: And my point of reference for Dennis Hopper is actually probably Waterworld. Okay, um, yeah. As the leader of the Smokers. So uh, maybe not the best reference for him. Well, but. I
0: was going to say Super Mario Brothers. My, oh, okay. I think the first thing I saw was Super Mario Brothers, and then eventually uh, Water World, and eventually Speed. Mm-hmm. So he, oh he, yeah, he, I totally yeah, forgot So he, Speed. he played variations of Frank Booth ever yeah. since, and maybe since because I saw all of those pictures before. Frank Booth didn't really bother me all that much because it to me it felt like Dennis Hopper being snarling and sadistic, and I had already seen that. However, given that this is the first time he did it. Mm-hmm. I imagine an audience seeing that for the first time would have felt it.
1: See To to me, Frank Booth is sort of in line with Anton Chigurh in like, I don't want to get in an elevator with that guy, but Anton Chigurh is a much more effective, uh, sort of creepy villain for me than, uh, Frank Booth, because like I outlined, he's, he's not fully fleshed out. Like, uh, and he, he almost seems like, you know, he plays those games where, um, I think when he first meets Jeffrey McLaughlin's character, um, he says, let's go for a ride. And Jeffrey's like, no, I, I don't want to don't want to what go for a ride, a ride. That sounds like a great idea. You know, he's playing like
0: those middle school games, mind games. And I'm glad works. you just said middle school mind games, because compared to Anton Chigurh, who was just frightening in his silence and his simplicity and in his mission, mm-hmm. Frank Booth really felt like just a sadistic seventh grader who was just chronically a bully and never grew out of his bullying. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't afraid of the guy. I didn't like the guy. And I and again, spoiler alert, he gets shot in the head. That wasn't nearly as satisfying to me as him just getting his ass whipped would have been. You yeah. know what I mean? I would have yeah. liked him to just get punched and in the face. You're, you're
1: right. It would have. And maybe maybe that's actually a darker... Because you don't get that satisfaction of just him getting really what he deserves. It's just sort of like he's dead. Dorothy Valens is released. Um, she's can assumedly get her son and her husband back, which we haven't even discussed. But that's sort of the, I guess, MacGuffin plot of, of this is that, that sets the whole ball rolling is Frank has kidnapped uh, her
0: son and her husband. And if you can shed some light, because I might have missed it. How did Kyle McLaughlin find that out? Because it seemed uh, to me, he broke into her apartment, watched her. And then the very next scene, he's explaining to Laura Dern's character. I think he I think this guy kidnapped her family. OK,
1: so that, that's interesting. I, OK, I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought this up because I, you know, it's, it had been a while, so I didn't remember every beat. And I thought it was very crafty the way that he actually uh, gives us that information. It's so he's he's looking around the apartment when he's broken in and uh, goes into the son's room. And you see like a a party or a birthday hat and like a child's bed. And then there's the picture underneath the bed or I'm sorry, there's the picture underneath the couch that has the marriage certificate on the back of it that she looks at at some point. I can't remember exactly where it is, uh, if it's with Frank Booth or if it's before Frank comes in one of those places. And then um, he sneaks out, looks at the looks, at the picture sees the, Marriage certificate. So that's where like that comes in. And I like all of that, like kind of just subtle way to get through that exposition, I thought was really nice. Like you don't see that a whole lot. And then and then it gets uh, clearly like we needed the exposition, though, because. Um, I mean, you didn't you didn't catch on to it. But then
0: he gets he gets in the car. Well, and I saw those and to me. I, I, I saw that. And, you know, OK, I get it. I get it. I get it. And then all of a sudden, like I said, he's explained to Laura Dern. And to me, it felt kind of like Lassie coming up and barking and saying, you know, little Timmy's fell down the well. But isn't that which a actually little... would have been a great thing to add is a dog runs <laughs> a, a, in and a starts talking dog. Yes. If you're if you're going to do the 1950s thing, yeah. they should have included Lassie. There, so there should have the, been a dog somewhere. You're right. Yes. They but missed that.
1: Um, I mean, it's still I, I think it's totally. Totally in line with the whole uh, sort of film noir thing. You have some of that where famously, like, there are moments where it just sort of topples end over end and gets from one point to the other because it has to. Um, So, I mean, that's that's the thing is it really, to me, felt like he was more than anything just riffing on the noir genre and, and playing with that and and playing also, I guess, with the idyllic setting it comes out of. You know, that the post-World War II sort of, uh, you have your uh, your Leave it to Beaver, and then you have your film noir happening, not exactly at the same time, but nearly
0: overlapping. Mm-hmm. And to that point, the film noir thing, have you ever seen The Big Sleep? Yes.
1: The big Is The Big Sleep the one
0: where... That makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, like, there's
1: people who either end up dead or end up not like there's the body counts off and there's all
0: sorts of yeah the big sleep i believe that was howard hawks but i could be wrong on that but anyway that's the one wherever you're watching and you fall on you fall on no matter how intently you pay attention to every line of dialogue you're still going to get lost mm-hmm. so the the heritage of confusing film noirs is it's well established yeah. however at that point if you don't follow the plot then what you have to lynch onto as it were are the characters and to that point uh whereas the big sleep had lauren bacall and Bogie. humphrey bogart yeah. and i think that he played sam spade in that i think that was a sam I believe spade that's correct yeah i think i believe that was a sam spade picture however in this since i couldn't latch onto the plot so much i would just i would be left to latch onto the characters and to mm-hmm. that point i just didn't do that yeah i did i didn't the kyle mcglocken character and I that, was even watching it thinking, and maybe, it, you know, maybe you feel differently about him, but I was even watching it thinking I would have liked someone else in this. Like in 1986, he had just done Splash, maybe Tom Hanks. That would have been an interesting way to go huh. with it.
1: I I think that would be an interesting way to go with it. But at the same time, I love McLaughlin. I love McLaughlin in the Lynchian universe as well. I mean, um, and, that, and that's the thing is like maybe part of my because I definitely enjoyed this more this time around than I did even the first time. Um, So maybe part of my enjoyment uh, is being able to see exactly how it fits into the full landscape of Lynch.
0: The Lynch. This is our go to phrase, but the Lynchian cinematic universe, the
1: LCU. Yeah, Uh, because, I mean, you've got you've got McLaughlin. You've got uh, Laura Dern, who is in at least Wild at Heart. I don't I don't know if they did anything else together. You've got uh, the northwestern logging town. You've got, you know, this sort of idyllic. Happy go lucky sort of setting, and then a super dark. I mean, you said you haven't seen Mulholland Drive, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that in a way is sort of a feels to me like a uh, symbolic sequel, like in which, like, the kind of bright, shiny happiness is really ramped up, and then the darkness is even darker. Um, So the fact that Ebert like found something in that, but didn't in this is kind of fascinating.
0: Well, to like me. I, like I said earlier, I think that was the old man in the sea situation wherever he was coming back and saying, okay, fine. I understand Lynch now. And I, I, he, I like the guy, but he didn't want to do that with blue velvet for whatever reason. And, and he admitted which, he was wrong before,
1: which is odd because I mean, Ebert, one of the things I love about Ebert is he would revisit films, you know, 20, 30 years later or whatever, and actually reassess them from his new perspective as a different person. Um, so I think it's kind of interesting that he came around on you know, something like Mulholland Drive, but then never went back to revisit Blue Velvet.
0: Well, and I think it's a situation where he didn't just simply dislike the picture because of whatever reason, he took a moral stand against it. Mm -hmm. And so he was, he, I guess in his mind, he couldn't go back and it would almost feel like he's revoking his morals because he still had the morals he had, even if, and we're putting words into uh, Roger Ebert's mouth. But I have to assume that he did change his mind about Blue Velvet. So I can only assume that, his morals hadn't changed and his, the reasons he didn't like it were the same, even though he he got it now. Mm-hmm. And so he just didn't feel the need to revisit it. So in conclusion, you would recommend this picture. Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, it's maybe not the best
1: like entry point to Lynch. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But I, I found it a lot more fulfilling
0: knowing the scope of his stuff. It's probably not because it's his, quote, masterpiece. And Mm -hmm. so it's the most Lynchian of all of his things. So if you don't get it yet, maybe you should. So to that point, this was my war crime. This is the picture I was paying penance for. And while I think you may have (laughs) lost the battle on this picture, you may have won the war because I'm even more curious now to Mm -hmm. go to the other. And and I think something
1: like Elephant Man would be right up your alley. I mean, that's more a straight story to, you know, borrow another Lynch title. Um, but it's, it's a more, you know, there's still, you're still dealing with the grotesque, but it's has a sort of classic cinema feel to it. Um, I don't know. I, I think there are still Lynch pictures that you should see. I think there's some that you might like, I don't know if
0: you would ever appreciate a racer head, honestly. Well, that's one of those that I feel like I just need to need to see because, just you pull know, the band off. and know full, full yeah. well that I will not like it. Um, so again, once again, this is a war crime. Do you recall your war crime, which you wanted uh, La Dolce Vita. All right. So next time we do this, you know, whenever and wherever, maybe in place of Mr. Holmes, uh, whenever <laughs> we do this, I, are you prepared to tackle all, yeah, all I, 15 I, hours of La Dolce? Yeah, Vita? I, I, I haven't, uh, haven't stepped
1: into that endeavor yet, but I will do it before, uh, we do the next war crimes. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Well, you normally do beer recommendations, but if you don't mind, I think I'm going to step onto your turf here okay. with a beer recommendation. Okay, step on up. What do you, what do you have for us? Well, I'm going to recommend a beer that is near and dear to my heart. It's one known as Heineken. Heineken? F that sh-. pap's blue ribbon. Well, that didn't seem entirely necessary. Uh yeah, sorry. I don't know what came over me. Anyway, Blue Velvet, whether you choose to watch it while consuming a Heineken or a Pabst Blue Riven, is currently available to stream on Netflix and Amazon Prime and to rent on iTunes. And if you've seen this picture, please send us your thoughts at helloatwarstartsatmidnight.com. Or if uh, email isn't your thing,
1: we'd love to hear your sinister voice. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail in your best well-dressed man disguise at 484-424-6362.
0: That's 484 for Cinema. Stick around, we'll be right back after the break to discuss what makes a memorable villain.
2: I went to bed last night with some tears in my eyes, and I woke up this morning under sunny skies and a rainbow by my window. And I knew, I knew right then I'd fall in love again. I'd fall in love again. When you looked my way, I knew down deep inside me That you liked my dress I could tell by your smile that you did and you do And I knew, I knew right then I'd fall in love again And I gotta find a new place to work I'm not the type of girl who needs your support And I gotta clean up this messy old place The only thing I notice is your pretty face we belong together.
0: There are many things to discuss when talking about Dave Lynch's Blue Velvet. However, the one aspect of this picture which even those who haven't seen it know about is, of course, Dennis Hopper as Frank Booth. I believe he was actually one of AFI's Top 100 Villains. And for certainly good reason, even though within the picture itself, it didn't bother me. The character was so effective in pop culture that he wound up playing it a variation of for the remainder of his life and career. Well, I also think Frank Booth is just a character that is
1: maybe even more effective in memory than he is necessarily in the film. Much like King Koopa.
0: Who yes. is a variation of <laughs> of the Frank Booth character uh several years later. So that is the inspiration behind today's special features discussion. What makes a memorable villain? And I'm just briefly glancing at Chris's list and his it it's certainly very there there's a wide variety, so I'm interested in talking about some of yours. Yeah, you know, I, I tried to go uh, you know, kind of all over. the I've got some animation picks. I think animation movies are a really good spot for a probably really the best, good, quite honestly, yeah. because they're not really bound by they're not bound by. Uh, what's realistic, as well. And, and
1: you can also, like, it can get a little trite in a typical live-action thriller, whereas, like, I think with uh, a really good, you know, a really good Pixar movie or a really good animation film, it can be working on multiple levels. And if they pull that off, well, it actually has so much, you know, beyond just a bad guy being a bad guy.
0: Well, and actually, not to divert us at the very outset, but are you tired of the smarter than the good guy villain that we've seen in seven we've seen in the dark Knight, we've seen in no country for old men it's it's gotten to the point where it's almost a cliche that you're going to have this villain who's not necessarily physically imposing in the case of anton sugar they are but not necessarily physically imposing but just so cerebral and so much smarter than the heroes that he's scary for that reason well i like that character uh in those pictures mentioned it kind of seems passe to me how do you feel about that To me, I mean, those those pictures that you mentioned, I think
1: they work very well. I think the problem is more uh, movies who see that as a or, you know, screenwriters, maybe journeyman screenwriters who see that as a trope to latch on to and don't flesh it out enough, Um, which I, you know, I think is possible with any sort of trope in, in, in film in general is if it's not done right, then it becomes just contrived. And so I wouldn't say I'm tired of it. I'm tired of see, seeing it rift on in a way that doesn't do justice to that sort of character. I mean, I think I don't know why I just keep going back to uh, superhero movies and, and Marvel, but I think Ultron was a you know, he was a smarter than the. Uh, good guys sort of character, but he was dynamic and he had sort of a, you, you could almost see, you could almost side with him, you know, in, in certain ways, not, not entirely, obviously he's still the bad guy trying to destroy the world, but you see where he's coming from.
0: Yeah. And, and actually, you know, this is where I sound like a hypocrite. I almost wish he was smarter, but we discussed that last time. So let's just start off with this obvious question. Chris, what makes a memorable villain?
1: To me, I think it's a few things. I think, you know, genre pictures definitely lend themselves to uh, having and honestly needing a memorable villain in a lot of ways. Um, so something like, uh, actually, one of my favorites in recent memory is the pin in Ryan Johnson's first movie, Brick. You know, it's this noir set in a high school, and he's sort of this drug kingpin, but he. <laughs> He's the drug kingpin who's still in high school, still lives with his mother. Um, so there's a very like weird dynamic going on there where at one point he's having a meeting with Brandon, the main character played by Joseph Gordon Lovett. And the pin's mother is like, I don't remember what I, I think giving them, you know, waffles or something and uh, offering him like, do you want anything to drink? We've got orange juice. It's country style. Like there's a weird little thing going on there. And so on, on the one hand, he's very imposing and very powerful and very scary. Uh, on the other hand, he's still a high school kid, but fitting into that noir element. Um, he, he's very memorable. He's very, you know, having that, uh, I I think having a mystique is a really good, uh, or is a sign of a really good, Villain, You know, not knowing exactly every everything behind their motivation. Um, I think there's you know, there's a lot of things that you can you can get something else, you know, like uh, Amy in Gone Girl, Amy Dunn. She's another sort of villain who's almost the anti hero villain in a a way like the way that she uh, controls and manipulates. You kind of root
0: for her at times, you know, like, well, I'm not sure I would go so far as to say I root root for her, but I do think that that character is a Rorschach test, particularly for women to see how crazy you are. And wherever you, wherever, if if you're watching that, wherever you land on that de- determines how likely you are to frame your husband for your murder. What what about you? What do you what do you like in a I'm good villain? Gl- well, here's I, I I I like the cerebral villain when it's done well, but as you uh, put it, it, it's it's overdone, and I think it's time for a return for a different type of villain, which is the force of nature mm. villain. Herzogian villain. And when I, when I say force of nature, I mean literal force of nature. Like I believe the second villain, no, the second villain on AFI's list was Darth Vader, the first was uh, Hannibal Lecter. Mm-hmm. But I believe within the top 5 was Jaws, the shark. Oh, yeah. And so it's one of those things a villain which it's not that you don't understand their motivation. They have no motivation other than destruction. Yeah. I even like and this may seem way too broad to define it, but the fire in the towering inferno. You it's not a human villain, it yeah. is people competing against something that that they don't have the means to stop. It's not smarter than they are. It's not it's you know it's, yeah, it doesn't but, even I have mean, a brain to be smarter, but we 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 are just forced into a subservient human feeble it's, state.
1: It's the jungle in Fitzcarraldo. It's the, um, <laughs> it's nature in grizzly man. Like it's that, that's why, you know, Fitz. Right. Uh, Herzog fits so well into that for me. Cause like all he's about, he's, um, you know, he's constantly trying to remind us that nature will win out in the end, no matter what. So yeah, that I, I, you know, I think you're right. We haven't had maybe, Maybe once this superhero wave peters out, maybe we can get back to some of those just Matt. Well, but then again, we've got like 2012. Well, recently, like-
0: yeah, I think what the reason why that isn't happening already or why it's taken a while is just let's take San Andreas, for instance, a picture mm. that's coming out, I believe, in two weeks. But anyway. That that came out and then the Nepal earthquake happened and now they can't promote it by mentioning really uh-huh. the earthquake without being in bad taste ever since nine eleven, the natural disaster mm-hmm. kind of pictures See, those villains have it, it seems in bad taste.
1: To, to me, though, it's also about scope like they've just gone so big that I don't care as much like it's like the entire world is falling apart and when that's the case like. I have a harder time attaching myself to these characters who are like so I mean, they're ants in the scope of all of this. And uh, so like something with Jaws, Jaws, it's just this small beach community up against this giant shark. You know that those odds, while still um, very (laughs) weighted in the favor of, of the shark, at least seem like you can.
0: Um, You have a fighting chance. And I think that's a good point to make, is that in order for you to have a memorable villain, you have to be able to, quote, kill them. You have to be able to stop them. If they're unstoppable, then you're just you're not watching reality anymore. You're watching a movie. Whereas if it feels like you're watching something that could happen, that's what makes it scary. Mm -hmm.
1: And okay, so from that, I'm going to turn on a dime and go to one of my cartoon picks. um, Lord Radigan from The Great Mouse Detective which I would argue is the greatest of the Disney canon films. Really? Yes. It's it's and uh, maybe maybe the greatest is is a little strong. It's my favorite. Radigan the best villain or the Great Mouse Detective is the best film? Uh Great Mouse Detective my favorite of okay. the entire Disney canon. But Lord Radigan, who is voiced by by Vincent Price, I mean he is the he's what you would expect of Vincent Price, sort of a chewing the scenery at every turn sort of large, bombastic, um, very, very dramatic, very, um, you know, he, he's a showman of a villain.
0: Well, and, and, and we, must, we just talk about Rat in the remainder of this, but now that you mentioned there is some depth to him, which you recognize even as a child is you had a rat who pulled himself out from the gutters and made something of himself, yeah. but and so, but was also a villain on top of it. He's almost a, not Sherlock Holmes, but an H.H. H. Holmes, America's first serial killer is a, a person who started at the bottom and then made themselves uh, something spectacular started at the bottom nose here huh S- <laughs> never mind
1: moving on anyway, but no, right like, of sort of sort of like uh you know Danny DeVito is as Cobblepot in, in The Penguin in Batman Returns sort of has the same like he he's obviously intellectual he's obviously um you know got got some brains and some gusto a self-made monster yes um, and, and very much, I mean, maybe even more of a monster
0: than Radigan. Even though Radigan's a giant, you know. Uh, See, I don't think that the penguin. See, I don't think that the penguin, upon reflection, did anything so cruel as throwing his drunken servant. To be eaten that's, by a cat—that's true. That's next note. That's a level of sadism, sadism yeah. that I don't think the penguin ever uh, the, reached. The penguin
1: also didn't have any Bond-style elaborate uh, killing mechanisms that were,
0: you know, back to the the showmanship. And like, and, and you and you just said you just said the B word. Um, oh who's no. your the Bond? Who's your favorite Bond villain? Who really stands out to you?
1: Uh, Hunter, don't put me in this position. I really, I you know, I I have seen recycled bits of bond bond films okay so whenever I, you said
0: don't put me in this position i thought you were gonna say you know sophie marceau from golden <laughs> Globano- or from uh, the world is not enough
1: <laughs> uh and i no, was like tr- to be and you know i i'm not even gonna say that these would be war crimes but i do like they're they're on my list of like at some point i need to just like sit and go through um, have you have you seen golden eye because that is the yeah, correct answer and, well okay you think so yeah okay um what I was going to say is playing GoldenEye. Like
0: I know all of the Bond villains because I'm not GoldenEye, Goldfinger. Wow, I just uh, no, I, I haven't. Goldfinger would Wait, be the best. It's villain.
1: Goldfinger, which is the one in that takes place in Las Vegas, and he's uh, like scales the exterior
0: of the uh, hotel. It, who was that Sean Connery? Yeah. I believe that's never seen ever again. Was that the early 80s? I don't know. Okay, I think that's the <laughs> I one. I can't yeah. tell you when it. We're well, going to have an army of angry Bond villains come yeah, after us.
1: Our our former coworker or uh, your former coworker, my still co-coworker, Alan Miller is going to be real real angry at at me. Well, I'm just impressed that he's listening. We love you, Alan. <laughs> Alan's not listening. But uh, no, I I I can't say. Um, I do think Um, As much, you know, I think Skyfall was sort of a mixed bag. Like, it was very beautiful. It was certainly not the worst Bond film, um, not even the worst of the Daniel Craig movies, but it fell short in some places. But I thought uh, I'm losing the name of the character that uh, Javier Bardem played uh, in Skyfall. But I thought he was a very interesting and maybe, you know, he probably falls into the smarter than everyone else Mm -hmm. and maybe Honestly, a lesser uh, interesting, you know, not as interesting as as uh, John Doe or some of those or even Anton Chigurh. Um, But there was still something about the way that he sort of commanded a room or,
0: um, you know, had he had power just in his physicality. Well, and to that point, since he was the villain in Skyfall, I thought effectively, and then also No Country for Old Men, which he actually won an Oscar for, and then also that Sean Penn movie nobody saw. Do you think that there's diminishing returns with Javier Bardem or anybody playing a villain? Maybe. Um, I mean, I think it. I think it depends on what they're. Uh, you know, that I, I think that's.
1: A, of a trap of a question it, it depends on what sort of if they're just being typecast as
0: oh they're the new villain i mean what about dennis hopper what do you think well about- and that's the that's that's my was my thing with frank booth is it was almost a diminishing returns in reverse is that having <laughs> seen everything that he did inspired by frank booth frank uh-huh. Booth was ergo less effective yeah but let's let's come up with two different scenarios you have anthony hopkins who has played Hannibal Lecter over and over again, compared to Javier Bardem, who has played different villains over and over again, but all similar, Mm -hmm. which do you think is more likely to lose its appeal over time? Um, I, I don't know. You know, it's, I think the Hannibal Lecter
1: character is losing its appeal just by, you know, Brett Ratner directing the film or, you know, the, the Hannibal movies haven't been great, you know, since Silence of the Lambs is definitely the high watermark core. Hannibal Lecter movies so I I think that's a different you know there's there's more that goes into it than just um, the character returning and and for Javier Bardem I think he's uh, he's you know, picked interesting baddies, but at the same time, like I think he's at a point where he's being picked to do it because people have seen him do it,
0: and it's a safe bet to say like, oh, that guy can be creepy. Speaking of that guy can be creepy, who is your if if you're prepared to answer this question, who would you say is your all time favorite villain? Besides Radigan, of course. Ooh, all time favorite villain. In what, uh just just no holds barred, just whatever? Yeah, no holds barred and then justify the decision.
1: Um That's a tough one. You know, I'm going to go with a nostalgic pick here, and I'm going to say Dustin Hoffman in a little known film directed by Steven Spielberg Mm -hmm.
0: called Hook as Captain James Hook. Um, Mine is going to be pretty obvious, but that's that's the way it goes. My favorite villain is actually hunter cates and war starts at midnight <laughs> i think it's a villain that you're unable to really predict his motives or where he's going to go next he's 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 he is that force of nature much like the yeah. shark in Jaws. you really don't know what he's going to do next I, but he I, will always fo- he will do everything <laughs> in his power to foil the hero and so i really enjoyed that villain yeah.
1: i i think my thing with with hook is that was you know it's obviously a children's movie um it's sort of panned across the board or was panned across the board critically. I still love it. Um, and there was something to like, I can remember the moment as a kid, you know, rewatching it again and again, the moment that I realized there's a scene where he's, he's there with shmi and he's attempting c- to commit suicide or he's, he's looking for at least pity and attention while pretending to c- commit suicide. There was just something about that, you know, seeing a bad guy who also, uh, has some deeper layer, you know, seeing his emotional state and that he's while he's putting people in the boo box um, on deck down below in the captain's quarters. um, He's a little more
0: emotionally unstable and actually has, you know, real feelings like uh, the rest of us. So you would say Dustin Hoffman's Captain Hook was better than the 1940s cartoon Captain Hook. I'm not saying that i'm not i'm not saying that at all or jason isaacs from what is it oh isn't uh you jackman playing uh i think you jackman is playing captain hook wait sooner. can i can
1: i can i take back my uh, answer and actually say christopher walken as captain
0: hook in the pan yes, musical and I, and I didn't even remember that yes <laughs> yeah that's the correct answer i can't believe it took us however long it's taken us to get to the the premier villain yeah, the, in all of <laughs> in all of popular culture the zenith of the yes and speaking of zenith i I think we've hit a new low on this program. So do you have anything else to say about memorable villains? Uh, I have just one that I wanted to kind of throw in as, I guess, an honorable mention
1: because I missed it when we were talking about force of nature uh, villains, and that would be the sea in Solaris. And, you know, it is sort of this force of nature. It's also uh, a little beyond that. You know, it's, it's the main character, Chris Kelvin's mind, him fighting against himself and uh, so a bit of a different, you know, sort of villain than, than you typically get. And, uh,
0: just wanted to make sure that I got that one in there because, you know, I think it gives you a lot to chew on. Well, and we've certainly given our listeners something to chew on. I'm not sure if it's a lot, but we want to hear what you consider to be uh, the most memorable villains and what makes a memorable villain. So why don't you shoot us an email at hello at war starts at Stick around for our really rad recommendations.
1: Coming up next.
2: Don't say you're coming. If you're coming late. I'd rather know now. Instead of having to wait. The house is cleaned up. It's ready to go. But what's it matter anyway. If nobody shows up. Shows up. On time. For the celebration. Of mine. Why must everybody show up late. Do my parties. Everybody shows up late to my parties.
1: Okay, so we've reached the end of the show, and uh, you know, we always like to close it out with some really rad recommendations.
0: Uh, Hunter, what do you have? Do you have a really rad radigan for us? A, a good baddie? You know, uh, hmm. actually, I'm trying to think because it's a documentary, but no, there's not really a bad guy. It's Jiro Dreams of Sushi. I don't know if you've seen isn't, this. Isn't Jiro sort of the bad guy, though? Have you isn't, seen it yet? I, I haven't. I, I wouldn't say so. No, it's actually a it's it's a story, a documentary of a person who's I wouldn't say obsessed, but their their life is built around their love of making mm-hmm. sushi. And so if you are a foodie or a budding foodie like myself, you'll find it fascinating the degree to which he goes to produce the sushi and then as a additional uh as an additional recommendation by the same filmmakers of your dreams of sushi is chef's table mm-hmm. which is a new documentary that uh, recently documentary series actually. excuse me documentary yeah. series that recently premiered on netflix and what i like about all of these is that they don't just discuss what they're making as it were they discuss the philosophy behind it so it's Mm gotten me to think differently than i would have otherwise about food each one of them it's not just about the dishes themselves it's why they're making it and what they're trying to convey so if you have any creative inkling you can get something out of it um because it just it teaches you to think more about what you're doing than just simply the end product itself but why you're doing it so that is Jiro dreams of sushi and chef's table all of which are available to stream on Netflix.
1: So there's no like we don't have any evil food critics I take like it, in Ratatouille.
0: I, I take it back. The villain in Geo Dreams of Sushi is the commercial fishing industry. Okay, which they they implicate in overfishing tuna. However, they're not. It it, it that's all they go with it. There's good enough. I'll
1: accept it. Yeah. Um. You know. And, and I'm giving you a hard time over this. I my recommendation. Uh, doesn't really have a single bad guy per se. It's uh, the short films of Buster Keaton. I've been watching a lot of these lately um, and just find them marvelous. Uh, they're, they're typically about 20, 25 minutes. You can find a lot of them on Netflix. Um, also, uh, I've been watching them on, uh, there's a Buster Keaton Blu-ray box set that I want to say is put up by Kino. Um, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, that has a whole bunch of his early, two real, short films. Uh, It's amazing to sort of see Buster Keaton as a budding filmmaker, if you are a Keaton fan. Um, Even if you're not, like, these are maybe a great entry point because they're only 20 minutes long, 20, 25 minutes long. And uh, they're just, they're a whole lot of fun. Keaton does a lot with, you know, his, he's very well known for his sort of physical comedy, his Pratt falls and that sort of thing. And there's, there's certainly a lot of that in these, like in uh, one of his very first films, uh, I believe it's called Seven Days. He builds a house, uh, gets married, builds a house with his wife, and the house actually becomes sort of the antagonist. It uh, crazy things happen with it. It even at one point is the entire house is spinning around in circles. Um, there, there's also some great special effects, like uh, in the playhouse. You see, you get to see Buster Keaton doing like. Oh, gosh, I don't know, at least half a dozen characters on screen at the same time and it's beautifully masked to where, like, I, I know how they did it but I can't tell, I can't see how they did it, there's no telltale signs of any of this um, so I'll I'll link to a few of these actually in the, uh, in the show notes, I'll also link to the box set, which is definitely worth picking up if you're a Keaton fan, or, you know, maybe uh, check it out, see if you can find it at the local library if you're interested in him, but not you know, not really
0: sure, so that's uh, the collected short films of Buster Keaton. And so Buster Keaton playing multiple characters, would you say it's on the same level of quality as Eddie Murphy's Magnum Opus Norbit? <laughs> that is not where I saw you going with this. I thought you were going to go with Michael Keaton and Multiplicity. Um, you know, Multiplicity is another undiscovered masterpiece, how, or a underrepresented masterpiece. However, I already recommended uh, those other pictures. I'm contemplating rescinding that, though, <laughs> for Norbit.
1: Well, I, okay, then you had two picks. I'll have two picks. I'm going to say Buster Keaton short films...
0: And Multiplicity. All of which I'm sure, many of which are available on Netflix. Multiplicity. Oh, wait, no, it's not. Because oh, I had no. to watch it. Yeah, I had to watch it because it was going away in a couple of days. <laughs> and so I made sure to watch it. So it's no longer there. Sorry, we'll, folks. We'll,
1: we'll figure out where it is. I'll link to it in the show notes. And, you know, have, have a great little time with uh, the, the multiple Keedons across uh, time and space. And that'll do it for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. To keep up with the show, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr at WSAMpod. Or check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com. Hunter, you've been doing some stuff over there. Tell us a little bit about
0: Turner Classic Tuesdays. Yeah, I mean, as the name implies, every Tuesday on the blog, we post upcoming pictures that are playing that week on Turner Classic Movies. So if you are a classic film fan, an indie film fan, or you just love hearing my insights on a variety of topics, be sure to check that out every Tuesday afternoon.
1: It's actually really good stuff. I've caught several of your picks solely based on your recommendation, and I mean, they've all been great. Particularly, Rodan. Uh, Hunter, there's something we need to talk about. I, I I'll just say I forgot to record it. Y- your DVR, I guess, it had too many, too much yeah, stuff on there. Too, too many too Buster much, Keaton shorts. Too, too many Buster Keaton shorts on it. Uh, you know. Also, every Friday, I'm doing a little blog post called Friday Featured Flicks, where I highlight uh, a great movie streaming, be it on Netflix, Hulu places like that. Um, Check it out every Friday afternoon, and it'll make your weekend a little streamier. Yes, and who doesn't want a streamier weekend, am I right? If you
0: like the show, help us reach new listeners by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. And if you hate the show, hate me, or hate Rodan, or have any other comments, please email them to us at hello at at warstartsatmidnight.com, or give us a call on that bright red telephone at 484 424 6362. Music on this week's show comes from the album My
1: Good Side by Ben Wilson and the Kimberleys. Check them out online at facebook.com slash
0: Ben Wilson and the Kimberleys. And tune in next time when Chris ruins his rug with the remnants of his summer shandy vomit. Hey man, it's not gonna happen, and I like that rug. It really ties the room together. Yeah, I'm gonna hate to see it go. Maybe we'll roll it up beforehand. Alright, whatever.
1: Thanks for listening, and go see Mad Max Fury Road this weekend. Twice.
0: Peace out, detectives and perverts. He's the ultimate, uh, even though it's set in London, but he's the American dream come true, a demented American dream, as you speaking of demented American dream just the ice cream truck just came by ladies and gentlemen uh, you have oh, this hold character on, hold on okay I think we're good you had a rat who pulled himself out from the gutters and